0: morning, Genesis 21, 22 through 34. That means next week, Genesis 22, the the climax of the story. Get excited for Genesis 22. But first, before we get to that great high, we've got this. We've got Abimelech part two. It's really tempting to skip Abimelech part two. Some do skip Abimelech part two, but we cannot do that. It must be here for a reason. But this is maybe the most ordinary and potentially boring story in the whole Abraham narrative. There are no visions. God doesn't speak. No grand promises. No angels. No brimstone and fire. Hagar and Ishmael are gone. It's all quite ordinary. We have Abraham. We have Abimelech. They have a conversation. Well, what is this about? What is the story of Abimelech about it? And how does it connect to everything else? That's a good question. And remember, it must connect. Context tells us that it connects. Look back, chapter 20. We are introduced to Abimelech in chapter 20. Remember that story. Abraham, again, foolishly, lies about the identity of his wife to save his own neck. He says, she's my sister. Abimelech, who is the king, takes his wife, Sarah. God intervenes. He warns Abimelech, you're a dead man. He closes the wombs in his house. God protects and preserves Sarah. And in so doing, we saw that God protects and preserves his promise of a seed, a son. Very next thing that happens, chapter 21, that seed, the son, is born, Isaac, is born. There's much laughter and rejoicing. Ishmael, though, is not rejoicing. We've seen Ishmael mocking. He's persecuting. He's opposing Isaac. And then Ishmael is cast out. And that's the main point of the Ishmael story. And in casting out Ishmael, the rival, God again protects and preserves his promise of a seed, of a son. And then, after that, it's right back to Abimelech. So think about kind of the structure of it. Get it in your mind. We have Abimelech. We have Isaac and Ishmael. And then we have Abimelech. And so what does the second story with Abimelech revolve around? Well, it revolves around land. The land. As Abraham makes a covenant with Abimelech to stay in the land. Remember, big picture. The story of Abraham is all about the grand and glorious promises that God makes to Abraham. What are they? We've summarized them as three things. First one, blessing. 12.2, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So God's promise to Abraham is that he will bless him and then through him he will bring blessing to the world. How? Well, it's the other two parts of the promise. A seed, I will give you a son and make you into a great people. Last week, we talked about the seed as we concluded the story of Ishmael, who is not the seed, as we then saw that God discriminate and divide. Isaac, in, seed of the woman. Ishmael, out, seed of the serpent. I wish I had read through Malachi before I preached that sermon. I was reading through it on Wednesday and was struck by 3.18, where God says, Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. That's what we've just seen with Ishmael and Isaac. And we focused last week on how God relates to Ishmael, representative of of the world, the wicked, those outside of the covenant. And we saw that ultimately, potentially controversial claim, ultimately at least, God is not working for the good of God of the wicked. Ultimately, I'm not sure how we can argue that in light of all we've been studying in revelation, in light of the end and what's coming. God relates to the two different seeds differently, and that's central to the whole story. Remember we're tracing all of this back to Genesis 3:15, and the promise of these two seeds and the perpetual conflict between the two. So Isaac and Ishmael, that center section was a focus on the seed part of the blessing. But now we turn back to the second part of the blessing. God says to Abraham, I will bless you. I will give you a seed and I will give you a land. Abimelech part one, God keeps his promise of a seed. Abimelech part two, God keeps his promise of a land. This is a strange and somewhat obscure story, but since the story of Abraham is ultimately about covenant, and Abimelech is part of the story of Abraham, the story of Abimelech must then ultimately be about covenant as well. And this one's easy, because it actually has a covenant in it. We've talked a lot about covenant, God's covenant with man, how God relates to man, but today in our text... We actually have before us the first covenant in Scripture between two people. As Abraham, God's people, cuts a covenant with Abimelech, who I'm going to argue is is not God's people. Like Ishmael, he can represent for us the world. So if last week was how God relates to the world, this week could be how we, the church, relate to the world. So we're going to look at that. Though this is that is... Really only a secondary purpose of the text. What's the primary purpose? Why is this story here? It's to again draw our attention to how God relates to those who are his. His. Here's, I think, kind of the main big idea of the text. God's presence and God's covenant love provides his people rest, security, stability, whatever you want to call it. Or quite simply, God's presence with his people provides peace. For his people. That's kind of what we're gonna focus on. God's presence with his people provides peace for his people. And here in this story, he's giving Abraham a, a, a hint, a little taste of what's to come. And in finally giving him some rest in the promised land, he's pointing us forward to the true rest, the eternal rest that awaits all who are his. So that's kind of what we're driving at, God's peace with his people. Let's walk through this uh, with four points this morning. We're going to start with what God does for those who are his, how we can then respond to the world in light of that, but then most importantly, how we respond to him in light of that. So four points. We're going to walk through them. We're going to see first and most importantly, that God is present with his people. That's the first thing singled out. In the text, then we're going to see that God's presence with his people provides peace. Then we're going to see that in light of that, God's people will seek to live lives at peace with not God's people. How do we relate to the world? Let's look at that. And then we'll close with the end and see that God's people live lives of worship. So that's that's our goal here in the next couple of minutes. Let me read the text for you first. And then we will walk through it. Genesis chapter one. I'm going to read starting in verse 22 uh, through verse 34. But pay attention because this is what God wants to say to you today. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal kindly with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it. Until day, So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, well, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. If you would bow with me and let's begin first uh, with a word of prayer. Father, this is your word that we now come to. Father, this is your word that is living and active. This is the word which is the means through which you mediate your presence to us, which you reveal yourself to us uh, through your words and, and through your promises. And Father, we see the fulfillment of some of those promises in this word. Father, I ask now that you would comfort us through this word. I ask that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds to understand your word. Father, we cannot even understand your word apart from your spirit. I cannot even effectively teach your word apart from your spirit. So we ask now uh, that you would help us. Father, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe that we can accomplish nothing of value here without him. So we ask now for you to work um, in this time by your spirit through your word. Father, help the teaching of your word. Help the hearing of your word. Help us to love you and become more like you as a result of this word. We thank you for, we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so let's start with the most important point. Everything else builds off of this. This is also an important reminder and review of the nature and the goal of covenant. Point number one, God is present with his people. Where does that come from? Our first verse, 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Stop there. Right, so we have Abimelech, again, I think as a pagan king. Uh, he somehow recognizes God's presence with Abraham. Last week, Ishmael out, Isaac in. I think we kind of have the same thing here. We have Abimelech, who is out, Abraham, who is in. Abimelech is outside the covenant with God. The covenant that is life, Abraham is in. So Abimelech is not God's people, the wicked. Abraham is God's people, the righteous. But if you can remember back to chapter 20, when we started this story, my first two points there were God's people are sometimes pretty bad, as we see Abraham fear man and then lie about his wife. And then second, we saw that well, pagans are sometimes pretty good, at least relatively so. So in Abimelech part one, Abimelech is clearly portrayed as acting and at least seeming more righteous than Abraham at times. And yet, he's the pagan. I think that's pretty interesting. So again, we've got to sort out and discern the difference. What really is it that makes someone part of God's people? It must be more than doing some good things and being a generally good person. It's more than morality. And so this Abimelech that has come across pretty well up until this point in the story, he comes to Abraham. They've got a history. It's not a great history. Remember, it's Abimelech that rebukes Abraham in part one. What have you done to us? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. The pagan rebukes the righteous. And he's correct. Abraham had lied to him. Abraham had endangered him and his whole household. Abraham has dealt somewhat shiftily with Abimelech. And so it's understandable... That Abimelech is a little bit nervous. Plus, let's not forget that Abraham is great. Remember, that's the promise back in twelve two. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. That's already happening, and Abimelech is recognizing that. And remember back in chapter 14, number 14 is this interesting story. There's this seemingly invincible coalition of kings that sweeps through Palestine, wrecks everything, sacks Sodom, and then rides off with Abraham's nephew Lot. Well, it's Abraham that actually pursues them, and he's able to assemble, it says, a force of 318 trained men, all of his house. And that was years ago. His house would have only grown. So again, resist the temptation to think of Abraham's house as like little old Abraham in a tent with Sarah and Isaac in tow, wandering kind of around by themselves. No, that's not what this is at all. His house includes hundreds, I am definitely thousands of people. If he is able to, over 10 years ago, assemble 318 trained men from his house... Then you add, many years later, you add the other men, the women, the children. This is a massive group of people. Abraham's house is a town. He is great. Abimelech, as king, would have no doubt been aware of all of this. And so he then wisely desires peace with great Abraham. And then don't miss this detail because it wouldn't have been mentioned if it wasn't important. Abimelech does not come by himself but he is accompanied specifically by Phicol, who we're specifically told is the commander of his army. Listen, if I come to your house by myself, like hey, let's talk. If I come to your house with the police, well, I'm probably coming for a different reason, right? Here comes Abimelech, not by himself, but with his general, with the commander of his army. This is probably then some sort of military matter. We have politics that is happening here. We have the church interacting with the world. We have God's people interacting with the secular authorities. And we'll come back to that. But with that background laid, we now come to the main point. Abimelech recognizes God's presence with Abraham. I'm thinking, How could he not? It seems that Abraham can do no wrong. Or better yet, it seems that he does all kinds of wrong, and yet it seems to keep working out for all kinds of good. How could Abimelech not know that God was with Abraham? Abraham wronged Abimelech. Abraham did the wrong thing. And God himself comes to Abimelech and says in a dream, you are a dead man. Truly, God is fulfilling his promise to his man that he will bless him and make his name great. And Abimelech can see all that. And he sees that God is present with his People and church, I want to pause with this first and encourage you with this because this is everything. If you are in Christ, then God is with you, and if God is with you, then nothing else matters. Do we actually believe that, and do we actually live like that in the in the priority of the presence of God? We, I mean, we sing about it. The language of God's presence is omnipresent in our singing, but the concept of God's presence is often omni-vague. That's a word that I made up. I kind of like it. It's omni-vague. W- what is it? What does the presence of God actually mean? First, what is it not? Well, it's not some weird, mere intuition. It's not some sort of mystical God feeling. Notice, a lot of ways, always when you feel really, really good, that must be a God feeling. Well, what about when you feel bad? Well, where's God then? You know, I can feel God in this place. What does that mean? It's not some sort of emotional charge. It is first and foremost, arguably, the theme of Scripture. As one scholar argues, Ryan Lister, I'm, I'm leaning on him here. He argues that it, it, this is the theme on which the whole story of Scripture hinges. The presence of God is the central goal in God's plan of redemption, and the presence of God is the means. <laughs> It is the person by which God accomplishes his plan of redemption. The restoration of God's presence with his people and in the display of his glory as he executes that restoration is the whole point of scripture and the whole point of reality. Remember, this, I've argued, is what God is doing with and through Abraham. This is the ultimate goal of all of the grand promises that God has made. Remember back to chapter 15, verse 1. Look back at 15, verse 1. God comes to encourage Abraham. He reaffirms his promises to Abraham. And he says to him, Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. And then the ESV translates it, Your reward shall be very great. I argue that that translation is not very great. Uh, the King James, I think, is better. Uh, the King James here, it says, translates it like this. God says to Abraham, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. I think the more accurate translation is God promising himself as Abraham's exceeding great reward. The presence of God with Abraham is the exceeding great reward, is better than everything Else, Because that's the whole point of the covenant, which is the whole point of the story of Abraham. Remember the very beginning, Garden of Eden, not paradise because of what is there, but because of who is there. The garden is great because it is the place where God is perfectly immediately present with his people. The garden is what we were created for, God himself, to be with him. We were made in his image, like him, For him, to be fueled by him, to be loved by him, to love him, and to live for him. Because he is the all-glorious one. He's the weighty center around which reality revolves. But our sin spoiled that. Sin is its cosmic treason. It's rebellion against the creator of reality. And rebellion against the very fabric of reality itself. And since the all-glorious one is also the all-holy one, our choice of rebellion and rejection of the good, capital G, good, God is the good, rejection of that necessarily means we were choosing the bad, evil. And Psalm 5, 4, evil may not dwell with you. And so we see Adam and Eve cast out of the place of the presence of God. And ever Since this is what God has been about rectifying and restoring. And he does it through the promise of this seed, this son who would come and crush the head of the serpent and solve our sin problem. And in so doing, bring us back to God to restore to us the presence of God. And he's doing all of that through covenant the covenant that God has promised to Abraham, which is summed up in I am your exceeding great reward," listen. So that's why we talk so much about covenant. Covenant is about communion with the creator. Covenant is I will be your God and you will be my people. That's what God is doing for and through Abraham. He's making that possible. He's making presence possible because God's presence is life. This is why we read Psalm 16. I wish we would all just memorize Psalm 16. It's such a wonderful psalm. Verse two, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. There's no good apart from the Lord. Thus, everything apart from the Lord, everything outside of the covenant is not and cannot be good, or at least ultimately so. Verse five, the Lord is my chosen portion and my covenant. God is what God's people choose. Uh, I love how Steve puts it. Uh, Steve and Polo, welcome back. They're here for the first Sunday. We're glad that you guys are here. Steve has this little prayer handout that you should get from Steve. But he titles it, "God's portion." Our, no, God's presence our portion. And I love that. Verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion. He is what we choose above all else. Why is that what we would choose? Why is he the best portion? Verse 11, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's the presence of God. God is with us. He is the God of all glory and all goodness, and so it is with him and only with him that we find full joy and eternal Church, be comforted by God's promise. He is your exceeding great reward. God is present with his people. And so the question that we should all be asking ourselves then is, is like, does that delight us at all? Or did we ever get excited about this reality? I'm excited about watching football this afternoon, a little bit of football. I'm going to I'm, I'm go get chip cookies today because it's my girl's favorite. I'm really excited about that. I'm excited about sleeping tonight and having a day off. These things get me excited. I'm gonna, M- Melissa leaves me alone on Sundays for a while because she knows I'm tired. I just get to read a book. and those, but I'm excited about those things. Like, do we ever get excited about this reality? Do we think about this and delight in this and, and meditate on this? Is there any way we can say that this is a, the reality in which we live and the goal for which we strive? Pagan Abimelech recognizes that God is with Abraham. And it is this that distinguishes and defines the people of God. They have God. They love God. They live for God. They are defined and driven by this reality that God is with us. Again, that's the part that makes the most comforting psalm most comforting. Psalm 23. I will fear no evil for you are with me. That's everything. So we're going to start with this basic truth. Here is the identity that you need. Here's the thing that you need to cling to and to allow to identify you. Nothing else. In Christ, God is present with you. And I would like to just spend all of our time on that but we've only made it through kind of one somewhat introductory verse. Um, but I'm going to argue that this beginning and then the end, how Abraham responds is actually the most important part of the passage. Right? It's actually the, the main idea. God's presence with his people, what he does with that, and then how Abraham responds. But before we get to the end, let's look also at the middle. Let's let's jump to point number two. Point number two is that God's presence with his people provides Peace. Initially, I had this point where uh, God's presence with his people provides peace, security, stability, rest, and a whole bunch of things. Yeah, I struggle with succinctness. I'm working on my wordiness. So it's just peace. Because peace, rightly understood, encompasses all of those things. Right? Peace, shalom, in the Hebrew, it's a comprehensive term. And it's a comprehensive state. And it's not just the absence of conflict. But it's the presence of of wholeness and of completeness. It's what we were created for. And if God is who he says he is and and created us as he says that he did, then it is only in him that we can find this this wholeness and this completeness, this peace. But what does peace have to do with this passage? I mean, everything. Everything. I'm going to argue. I think peace is the point of this passage. We will look in our next point at how we are to relate to the world, but I think that's a secondary point of the text. The main point is what God is doing for Abraham kind of as a a pointer to the truth of what God does for all his people. What is God doing for Abraham here? What is the point of this strange story? Verse 23. Back to the text. Abimelech has come with his military commander. So there must be some sort of conflict uh, or, or at least the possibility of some sort of conflict. And so 23, Abimelech asks Abraham to swear to him by God that he will not deal falsely with him or with his descendants. Now, Abimelech has dealt kindly with Abraham. We saw that back in chapter 20, verses 14 through 16. Abimelech has given Abraham gifts and more importantly, Abimelech has given Abraham free reign in his land. He says, dwell where it pleases you. Again, that's a hint of where this is going and, and what this is about. So this is some sort of peace accord here. Abraham, Abimelech is suing for peace. Verse 24, Abraham agrees. But verse 25, Abraham also accuses. It says in verse 25 that he reproves Remember in chapter 20, we saw Abimelech rebuke Abraham. Now here in 21, we see Abraham reprove Abimelech. You say, hey, you say you want peace. What about my well? Well, Apparently, some of Abimelech's men have seized Abraham's well. And again, this this is difficult for us to appreciate. Um, They're in the desert, not the desert, as my notes say, as I'm noticing here. They're in the desert. Uh, Water is Life. Uh, well, then, is life. Wars are often fought over wells in the desert. That's probably why Michael is here. There is the potential for war when something as precious and valuable as water is on the line. And so in verse 26, Abimelech responds. He says, I, I don't know anything about this. Is he being honest? Well, maybe. I don't know. The text doesn't give us any indication. I'm naturally skeptical. Kings generally know what their peoples are doing, and something as significant as a war over a well is potentially happening. It would seem that the king would know about that, but again, I don't know that. I cannot say that for sure one way or another. Contrary to any other evidence, we have to take him at his word, as Abraham does here. And so verse 27, here's the point. Here's the point the covenant. We get to the covenant. But it's kind of difficult to sort out exactly what is going on here. I'm not 100% certain on all the details. Look at it. There's conflict in 25 and 26. Then there's covenant in 27. But what's the deal with all the animals? He gives sheep and oxen to Abimelech. Then in verse 28, he sets seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. Why? Good question. Abimelech is wondering the same thing. Verse 29. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? So there's seven ewe lambs set apart from the flock. What flock? Well, probably the animals in verse 27 that Abraham gave to Abimelech. Why did Abraham give all these animals to Abimelech? What were they for? Well, again, the text I think tells us. Animals are given the two men make a covenant they are making a covenant but remember back to chapter 15 the hebrew word is more literal than that in the old testament every time you see the english word made a covenant in the hebrew it literally says they cut a covenant I mean, think about it like a contract we don't generally say we made a contract right we say that we signed a contract right the the signing on the dotted line is kind of the the action that finalizes the covenant. Be thankful that that's what we do now, and not this. They cut covenants. We looked at this back in chapter 15, verse 10. Remember, God comes to Abraham. He commands Abraham. He says, take some animals, cut them in half, and then lay them, lay the pieces in a row across from each other. And then what you would do then to sign the contract is that the two parties would then walk through the animals, the cut animals. In effect, symbolically saying, if I break this covenant, may what has been done to these animals be done to me. And so Abraham provides animals and they made a covenant. So, what's happening here is Abraham provides the animals. They would have been cut. They would have been laid in these rows. He and Abimelech would have passed through the animals, and in so doing, would have entered into a mutually binding agreement of peace. Verse 31, swearing an oath. Then, the set seven apart lambs, the set apart seven lambs, verse 30 says, are a witness. What's exactly going on? Well, I think it's the same thing that we've seen Abimelech do in the previous chapter. Remember, if you look back at chapter 20, verse 16, Abimelech basically does the same thing. As he gives gifts to Abraham, remember he's taken his wife, Sarah. So then Abimelech gives Abraham all these gifts as a sign or as a witness, he says, of Sarah's innocence that before everyone she may be vindicated. It's most likely that these lambs are a similar sign. The well is Abraham's. The gift of the lambs, Abimelech's acceptance of the gift, as well as their entering into this covenant of peace, all testify to this fact that this is Abraham's well. Crisis averted, peace achieved. And that's the point that we're on. God's presence with his people provides peace. I think that's what God... Is doing here. I think that's the main point of this somewhat more obscure account. Listen to Calvin. Here's what Calvin writes He says, Moses relates that this covenant was entered into between Abraham and Abimelech for the purpose of showing that after various agitations, some repose, some rest at length was granted to the holy man. He has been constrained as a wanderer and without a fixed abode to move his tent from place to place during 60 years. But although God would have him to be a sojourner even unto death, yet under King Abimelech, he granted him a quiet habitation. I think what we're seeing here is that God is giving Abraham rest in the land as a preliminary fulfillment of that land promise, as a, as a small foretaste of what is to come. A preliminary peace, a limited earthly peace. God's presence with his people provides peace. And we know that ultimately and primarily what God is providing is, is peace with himself. Remember, that's our need. That's the ultimate need of all men. You don't deal with this need. You don't deal with the need. Romans five one. therefore, since we have been justified, that is declared Righteous. Remember, you have to be righteous to be in relationship with a righteous God. We were not righteous. Here's the gospel. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the objective spiritual peace that God provides for his people. Peace with himself. The God that we made our enemy through our sin. God makes us his children through his son. Peace. And this objective peace with God will then increasingly manifest itself in this experience of subjective peace. Isaiah 26, 3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. One of my favorite verses. The only person who has peace is the person whose mind is fixed on God because he trusts in God. John 14, 27. Jesus says, Peace. I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. John 16, 33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus provides peace. In him we have peace, but in the world, he says, Tribulation. Amen. We're seeing that right now. But I think what this story is showing us is that not only does God give us objective, eternal peace with Him, but He also, at times, as He does for Abraham here, provides for us periods of temporal, earthly peace, periods of, of rest and respite. God is giving Abraham a break, a rest. A repose. Abraham is now at peace with those around him. And he is at peace in the land. And that peace is good. But that peace is purposeful. Ultimately, I think that peace is in preparation for what is about to come in chapter 22. But we'll save that for, for next week. Because let's, let's keep moving. Let me at least briefly do the thing that I said that I would do. Let's briefly try to apply some of this to us... To the church. Point number three God's people seek to live at peace with not God's people. And that's what Abraham does in this account. God is providing for him a temporary earthly peace. Uh, we'll come back in a year or two and see that when we get to Isaac in chapter 26, right, this peace and this covenant concerning the well do not last. Uh, we come back to this uh, with Isaac. But for now, God is giving him a reprieve, a period of peace. And he brings it about through Abraham establishing peace with Abimelech. With God's people establishing peace with not God's people. That should always be our desire in our relationship with the world. Right? It's to be at peace with those around us. But first, let's be clear. We know a couple of things that this cannot there are a couple of commentaries that make a couple of claims about what Abraham is doing here that I don't think the text can uh, withstand. Listen, this cannot be Abraham establishing a friendship with Abimelech for James 4.4. 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And I wonder if the church believes that, believes God's word, today, as it seems that we are increasingly taking steps to align ourselves with the world and to work with the world and to be friends with the world. But we're told very clearly here that that is enmity. Enmity. We don't use that word. We should. That word means hostility. It means conflict with God. We've just been talking about peace with God. James says you cannot have peace with both the world and with God. You can only be aligned with friends with, ultimately, one or the other. So this cannot be Abraham seeking some sort of friendship with Abimelech, if Abimelech is a pagan. Nor can this be Abraham yoking himself to Abimelech. For 2 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? None is the assumed answer. So this cannot be some sort of partnership or fellowship. Uh, Paul says light cannot have fellowship with darkness. These are reminders from God's word that we desperately need these days as our culture is getting increasingly aggressive in its demands that we fall in line is a kind of massive growing hive mind manifesting itself and an increasingly aggressive groupthink that demands that we conform and affirm all that the world declares to be truth. Church, we got to be very careful with that. And this is why the book of Revelation is so helpful. Its, its graphic images show us what the world really is. It shows us that it's a beast under the sway of Satan with the second beast, as its mouthpiece, later described as its false prophet, declaring, deceiving, tempting, twisting, calling all to bow down and worship. Go read Revelation 13. It explains much of what is going on these days. The world is darkness. 1 John 5.19, it lies in the power of the evil one. Ephesians 2.2, 2, it follows the prince of the power of evil of the air, It shouldn't be a strange thing to say that God's people cannot have fellowship with that, with the world. That which is opposed to God and under his judgment. This is not Abraham yoking himself to Abimelech. So what is it? It's not complicated. We cannot read more into it than is there. Abraham is seeking simply to live at peace with his neighbors, which we all must do. God's people seek to live at peace with not God's people, their neighbors. A couple of verses, write these down. Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Don't forget the second part of that. Don't just do the f- peace without the holiness. Both of those things are important. Romans 12:18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably, with all. Strive for peace with everyone. If possible, live peaceably with all. Christians are people who have been given peace with God by grace through faith and as a result will then seek to live at peace with those around them. And this would be part of what it means to Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine, 39, the second great commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Amen and amen. Right? That's love. That's the love. Christians seek to live at peace with their neighbors as part of the fulfillment of the command to love their neighbors. But again, as we always have to do, especially these days, when someone uses a word, you really need to say, Hey, what do you mean by that word? Because we can mean completely different things with the same words. So what does that actually mean? What does it actually mean to love our neighbors? Now we know, based on what we just looked at concerning the world and its wickedness and its opposition to God, it, it's literally ruled by and following Satan, God's word says, that, that's what the word says about the world. So again, it, it shouldn't be that controversial of a thing to say that the church cannot take its cues from the world on what it means to love our neighbors. Right? We're not looking for the world to tell us, here's what this means and here's how we do this. And so, if the world is saying, hey, this is how you, uh, frequently, this is how you must, have you been feeling that pressure lately? Right? You're supposed to respond. You're supposed to post something. You're supposed to respond in a certain way. That feeling should serve as a big warning light, right? We do not follow the world, we do not learn love from the world. So, what does it mean to love our neighbors? Surprise. Again, God's word tells us. Look at Romans 13. Turn to page 9. Forty-eight. I think this is a really important point. Let's define our terms. Romans thirteen verses eight through ten. We don't have time to do this the justice that I would like, but let's let's run through it. Nine forty-eight. Romans thirteen verse eight. Paul says, "Owe no one anything except to love each other." There it is. Love. Love each other. Love your neighbors. Okay. Look at what he keeps saying. Look at how he goes on. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Oh, there it is. Don't miss that. Those two things cannot be divorced, ever. Love each other. Love your neighbor. That's kind of a strange way to put it, right? Love fulfills the law. But wait, what does love have to do with the law? And here's what the world does not and cannot understand. Everything. Paul says, love your neighbor. But still, what does that mean? He tells us. And this is amazing. Go chew on this some today. Love your neighbor. Verse 9. Here's how Paul explains love. For the commandments, the law, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. See what Paul does? Paul defines love with the law. He he says, love each other, and then he begins to run through the Ten Commandments. I don't think anybody does that today. Love each other, here's the Ten Commandments. Because that's how we love each other, by keeping God's law. Therefore, there can be no actual love apart from God's law. Therefore, again, the world cannot love in accordance uh, with God's standard, because it is not love if whatever it is is not aligned with God's law. It's like Proverbs 28.5, all over again. Evil men do not understand justice. We've already established that the world is evil, that all apart from Christ are evil. We were evil um, before the grace of God uh, redeemed us. That means that many Christians today are listening to evil men and getting all riled up because of what evil men declare about justice. When God's word says that they do not even understand. And it's no different with love. Love is the fulfilling of God's law. And so we love our neighbors first by keeping the first great commandment. You cannot keep the second great commandment without keeping the first great commandment. Loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We cannot love our neighbors if we're not doing that. And we cannot actually love our neighbors if we are not then doing so according to God's good law that reveals to us love. So yes, church, love your neighbors. But don't look to the world to sort out what that will look like. Don't see the world doing it and say, oh, maybe I'd better probably do it that way, or maybe I'll be called out or something. No, look to God's word. What is love? It means to seek the good of the loved. It is not love, then, if it is not serving the other for their good. And as we've just read in Psalm 16, there is no good apart from God. He is goodness personified. We cannot then love our neighbors if we are not doing so in reference to their standing before the Lord. We cannot then love our neighbors if we are not doing so in reference to eternity. We are not loving them if we help them gain the whole world, but leave them in the condition of forfeiting their soul. What would that profit them? Nothing, Jesus says. But listen, let's because we're also not loving them if we just ignore their other more earthly, immediate needs. As God brings neighbors into your life that will have these needs, you are going to have opportunities as a Christian to demonstrate God's love and demonstrate your care for their spiritual needs by caring for their physical needs. But don't divorce the two. If you are actually loving that person, then you will, as we saw in Sunday school this morning, you will minister to those physical needs for the express purpose of pointing to and ministering to their ultimate spiritual needs. You will meet that physical need while calling them to the only one who can meet their spiritual need, Jesus Christ. True love demands that we care for the souls of men and that we seek to live at peace with those around us so that we may better do so. That's why we should ultimately seek to live at peace with not God's people, because peaceful relationships will allow us to proclaim the gospel freely and more effectively. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2, a pretty relevant verse. I didn't know Peter was going to pray this. Uh, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions. So Christians are commanded by God to pray for those whom God has ordained to be in authority over us, no matter who they are. Paul wrote that when Nero was the emperor. He says, pray for Nero. We're called to pray for our leaders. Do we ever actually do that? But, why are we commanded to pray? For our leaders. To what end? Paul tells us. He goes on. That we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. You see that? Peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified. Yeah, if only that was what we were known for right now. But it, this is what we are called to. And, and why is such a life of peace good? Remember, main point, God's presence with his people provides peace. Ultimately, we know that it is peace with God that he provides. We were at enmity with God, in conflict with him. Under his right wrath, Christ takes that wrath so that we can be reconciled to God. So we have peace, spiritual peace. That's what the story is ultimately pointing us toward. But we are also seeing that God does, at times, provide periods of peace on earth in this life. But he does so not just to make our lives easy, and comfortable. Here's maybe the problem. Here's where the church has failed. In the 20th 20th, The American church, we have all probably failed. God's kindness was meant to lead us to repentance. Maybe God's period of peace was meant to lead us to actually do something with it and to proclaim the gospel. Um, We haven't done that. He doesn't give us these periods to make our lives easy and comfortable so that we can get rich, retire early, achieve the American dream, and, and live our best life now. No, he does this for a purpose. The purpose of proclamation. It's peace for proclamation. God's people seek to live at peace with not God's people, ultimately, so that they can do whatever they can within their power to gain a hearing for the good news of the gospel of peace. That's what the church is and is for. 1 Peter two nine. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That is, Purpose statement, church. Here's our purpose. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Is that what we are proclaiming right now in our churches, in our families, our neighborhoods, on social media? Are we proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light? Is that what you talk about ever, post about Is that what drives you? Is that what you are passionate about? And if not, and I'm talking to myself here, if not, we we have to repent. How could this not be the thing that we are most passionate about? We were dead, but God made us alive. We were destined for an eternity in hell. God rescued us and gave us an eternity in heaven. We existed in a condition of misery and sin along with the world. God gave us blessing and righteousness. You are in a state of conflict with God himself. God has given you peace. Guys, that must excite us. That must be why we ultimately seek to live at peace with those around us. So that we, so that they may come to know the God of peace through our proclamation of the gospel of peace. And last point, we're out of time. Let me run through it real quickly. I promise it will be quick. Um, I'll be brief. I shouldn't do those. I shouldn't say that. I take that back. Um, I will be quick. Notice three times. 31, 32, 33. Look at it. We have repeated the name of a place. Beersheba. We'll see at the bottom of the page, footnote number two there. It's a fun word. In the Hebrew, it could be translated to mean either the well of the seven or the well of the oath. Verse 28, we have the seven lambs. Verse 31, they swear an oath. This word could refer to both of those. Things. This is going to be a very important place for the rest of Genesis as a major residence of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it will be later important as distinguishing the southern, southern boundary of Israel, the land, the promised land, as we'll at times see the formulation from Dan to Beersheba, from the north all the way to the south, Dan to Beersheba. Abraham is in the land. But don't miss this. I'm, man, I'm poorly breezing over potentially the most important part of the text. Again, the point of this text is not primarily about how Abraham relates to Abimelech. Uh, that's dependent upon this, how Abraham relates to God in response to, how Abraham, right, in response to how God relates to Abraham. And so notice verse 32. The most important thing that Abraham does in this narrative doesn't happen until after the pagan departs. Verse 32, Abimelech leaves. Verse 33, Abraham worships. Abraham plants this tamarisk tree. What's, what's that about? Well, trees don't generally grow very quickly. So if you're planting trees, it seems that if you yourself are somewhat planted, God has blessed Abraham with some sort of preliminary peace in the land. And so Abraham puts down some roots, literally. Remember also that we are in a desert. The whole story has revolved around a well, which is life in the middle of a desert. A tree, and if you're reading in the King James, you'll see that it, this translates as this Abraham planted a, a grove. It could be referring to, to more than one tree, many trees. So here we have a bit of life. We have an oasis surrounded by all this death. We have an oasis in a desert, life in death. Maybe a little bit of paradise. Maybe a little taste of Eden on earth. Remember, they were cast out of the garden, away from the tree of life. Here is Abraham, back in the land. Another garden, another place of God's presence. The first thing mentioned is God's presence with Abraham. And then now here is God's man whom God is present with planting the tree. You know, whatever, I don't want to speculate too much. So you know, whatever exactly is going on, it's an act of worship. As we see Abraham do this and then there call on the name of the Lord. The Lord, notice this new name here. First time this is used in the Bible, the Lord Yahweh the everlasting God. There's been a lot of wandering and a lot of changing in Abraham's life. Now there's some settledness, some security, all as a result of God, the everlasting God, the unchanging God. And so church, good news. God changes not amidst our changes. The changing world has no effect on the unchanging God. The ever-changing and ever-failing culture has no effect on the everlasting God. And so God's people can rest securely and cling to their unchanging God, their sure and steady anchor in the midst of all the change. And they can worship him. So not that. God's people worship. Not God's people depart. God's people worship. And again, here we have A clear manifestation of the fundamental distinction of God's people and not God's people. The righteous and the wicked. God's people live lives of worship. I don't care what you're doing. If this is not what's behind it, if this is not the fuel and the motivation for whatever it is that you are doing, then whatever it is, it's not Christian. Christian are those who are fundamentally oriented around God, who live to love him, and to serve him. Who have him foremost in their thoughts and minds. Their minds are fixed on him. Who then read everything in this world in light of this word. Who so delight in who he is and what he has done for them. That their whole lives revolve around him and his kingdom. And so they seek first his kingdom. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Because he is forever. Yahweh, the everlasting God. We will live forever, either in fellowship with him, at peace with him, or enmity with him, separated from him, uh, punished by him eternally in hell. And so God's people cannot help but worship him, and they love to worship him, and they do so with their entire lives. Church, God is present with his people. God's presence with his people brings peace, God's people then seek to live in peace with not God's people. And God's people live lives, entire lives of worship because of who he is and because of what he has done for us. Let's stop there and let me close with with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Father, I pray that my words would make your word clear. Father, I pray that we would see you in this text. I pray that we would see your grace and your mercy and your kindness to your people, your presence with your people. We thank you for this provisionary, um, provision, this provision of peace for Abraham that points us to the perfect peace that you have secured for us in Christ. Father, give us great delight in you. Um, Give us great thankfulness and joy for who you are and for what you have done uh, for us. Father, I can do nothing for our hearts and our minds. Father, I ask that you would work upon our hearts and our minds, that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged, comfort us where we need to be comforted. Father, pray that you would conform us to the image of your son, Jesus Christ, through your word. And we ask and we pray this in his name. Amen.